The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Come in. You sent for me, sir? Sit down. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Because of my superior record here, my accomplishments, the leaders of my party are discussing the possibility of a cabinet position for me. Of course, this is all very hush-hush. Well, sir, let me say I think you'd be a wonderful asset to the president. Your, your broad outlook would appeal to psychotic liberals as well as militant fascists. Something for everyone. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 18th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. You've probably heard it before. Those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. Or maybe you've heard, been there, done that. Wasn't there, talked about that. (laughs) Those thoughts, in essence, capture the theme of our show today, which was inspired by Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science, Salim Ansour, who once again joins us in studio to share his recent epiphany about the controversy surrounding opposition to Donald Trump. Welcome, Salim. Thank you, Bob. We must take a moment to remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ at 5130 kHz and on channel 292 at 6070 kHz, and of course visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Tell our listeners the story you told me of how you arrived at this interesting observation of yours and what the observation is. Maybe that's a good place to start. Lately, I was thinking, why is it that Trump has aroused such intense and immense hostility across the media and among, of course, with the Democrats, but also among the Republicans? I haven't, in my recollection, seen the sort of hostility that Trump arouses. And reflecting on that, it struck me that there may be some truth in the idea that Trump is not only a political outsider who won the Republican nomination this past year, but he is an outsider in a very striking way. We haven't seen someone in politics who come in as an outsider who has a record of his own achievement that stands as a measure of who the man is. Mm -hmm. This man has achieved things on his own. He is a builder. He is a towering business magnet. He has changed the skyline of New York, of Manhattan, and around the world. He has gone ahead and done things that few can be compared to. And the people who are tremendously hostile to him are people in the media, people generally in politics, people in the academia, are people who do not, in a sense, have a record or an appreciation or want to acknowledge what Trump and people like him have done. These people are generally talkers. They sit back and discuss things. They spin stories. 
They criticize others. And that thought, the chain of thought led me to the oldest sort of classification that goes back to Aristotle himself. Mm -hmm. Aristotle talks about in his work that the world of science, so to speak, in, in the organized of philosophy can be classified between those who are philosophers or theoretical, as, as Aristotle says, and those who are practical people, who accomplish things, who are mm -hmm. doers. And out of that has come, as in your opening remarks, the whole notion, which has become, in a sense, a cliché, but every cliché has some truth to it, that those who can do and those who can't teach, in other words, talk. Right. And Trump is a doer. Trump does not have the finesse uh, of articulating elevated thoughts in some fashion like a lawyer does or a journalist does, or more particularly, politicians do, reading off teleprompters. Trump speaks offhand. Trump talks about it, things in the way common people talk, and that's where his attraction is and where he gets the public support. Did you catch Trump's speech this past Monday? Yes, I did. Um, he was certainly more restrained and more presidential and not, and he sounded like a talker. In fact, just to look at the other side of that coin, is Trump's talent perhaps not talking? I was looking at uh, an interesting article I saw here in the Free Press written by Madeleine Ashby, who says being right isn't enough to win in the political game. And she makes a point commenting why men like Donald Trump are winning. She says these men didn't succeed because they were right. They didn't win over vast swaths of the electorate because they had all the facts. They engaged audiences by being engaging. It's not just what they said, it's how they said it. So she's basically giving Trump his due because of the way he speaks. Is that, is that counter what you're saying, or is it, or is it part pa of the same package? Partly, Bob. I mean, uh, in your remarks, you said Trump sounded presidential. You see, if you reflect upon your own remarks, Trump sounded presidential. Why did he sound presidential? Because here he was calm, he was mm -hmm. poised, and he was reading off a teleprompter. That means he was giving a package speech. Correct. Now, that package speech may be genuinely what Trump wants to say, but it was a package speech prepared by his people, the people who works for him, as opposed to where Trump just stands up and what his critics have called a stream of consciousness, a stream of thought. He just expresses himself. And he expresses himself in a way that he brings to the audience what they themselves have been thinking about. And right. he connects the hard hat. Right. As you reflect upon your words, sounds presidential. This is what has happened. Let's talk about it in the last, say, quarter century, which is a period where the crack-up of American politics or Western politics has taken place. And you and I have talked about this in our previous shows. And the people have finally come to the conclusion that they've had enough with manufactured and fabricated presentations, that they want to see someone authentic, someone genuine. In other words, they don't want to see another politician. That's what Trump is. Trump is not another politician. He's a business tycoon. He builds tower. Who did build tower, by the way? I mean, 
in the great modern literature in American uh, writing, Howard Rourke, well, of Fountainhead. Course, the Fountainhead. You, you know, is is this a pattern in history? Do you see that the the uh, doers versus the talkers in a way? For, for for a long time, you you if we found in politics, if we go back and look at it, American politics or European politics, particularly in in a democracy, that the elected leaders were people who came with accomplishment outside the world of politics. They were soldiers, they were. Adventurers like you know uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, they were engineers like you know Herbert Hoover, uh, they were businessmen, they were generals like General Eisenhower, or they had a career, a fabulous, phenomenal career outside of politics, like Winston Churchill, you know, and then they came into politics. They were ma- men of the world, and then they stepped into the world of politics, and people recognized that, their accomplishment, and then their representation, what is what democratic politics is all about. But in the last 25 years, you see what has happened is professional politician. Look at the present cycle in, in the primary that Trump competed against. There were 16 other candidates for the Republican nomination. Among the 15, there was only three, that is Trump, Dr. Ben Carson, who is a neurosurgeon, and Carly Fiorina, who came from the world of executives and business. Just three of them. The rest of the field were politicians who had spent their entire life in politics. Take the case of, uh, you know, Ted Cruz, or Marco Rubio. What is their accomplishment? This is what I kept pointing out. Their accomplishment. Outside of politics. Nothing. You mean. Zero. I mean, take uh, the youngest president who was elected in America, or was one of the youngest presidents, if I recall correctly, was John F. Kennedy. Now, John F. Kennedy was a war hero. Mm-hmm. But that generation, that's the greatest generation. They had all gone and they had fought in the war. That's the Second World War, the greatest war of their time. They came with their record. People recognized their sacrifice. They were patriots. They stood outside, uh, stood apart from the crowd. Now, you come to this last 25 years, you see Bill Clinton, who succeeded George Herbert Walker Bush. George Herbert Walker Bush was, again, part of the greatest generation. He was a soldier. He was an aviator, you know, he fought in the Second World War. But then what you come? Bill Clinton, Al Gore, his vice president, then George Bush, and and Dick Cheney, and then Obama, you know. Mm -hmm. So you have here a record of the past quarter century, people who are just talkers. Simple. I mean, take Obama, a community organizer. He has nothing to demonstrate outside of the world of politics, any accomplishment that people can look up to. Here was a man, you know, who had done something and therefore was deserving of a position, you know, which he was given a Nobel Prize even before he had done anything. (laughs) Would you you ever say that... uh, Talking itself is it can be considered an act of doing, or is that all? Is in, in in the context of our conversation, are those two separate things today? Well, well, politics is is, is in in some way the world of action, mm-hmm. you know. So let's let's go back. I, I I mentioned the name Aristotle. So let's go back in that classification. The talkers in ancient Greece were called sophists. Yes and engage in sophistry. Now, there may be a positive meaning to sophistry. You might say that 
People learn it in the art of conversation and the art of rhetoric. So a great speaker, an orator, had to have the skills of sophistry to some nature, some degree. But sophistry is simply spinning words. And today, a sophist is somebody who simply spins words, you know. Without you know, any real intent content. or meanings or, or anything behind it. You know, it. It, is, it is an agenda they have, and they will run down uh, somebody's accomplishment if they disagree with that accomplishment, or they will paint a picture of someone in, in a manner that does not represent anything that the person has done. Obama is a case. This is sophistry. He was given a Nobel Prize, Peace Prize. What had he done? Had he ended a war before he became a president, before he was given a Peace Prize? Had he negotiated anything? Was he a Lester Pearson, you know, mm-hmm. who, 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 who negotiated uh, and, and brought about this whole notion of peacekeeping in, 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 in the United Nations? So what was his accomplishment? I, I, I think that's what it is all about. I mean, a, a good lawyer, he has to have the skill of talking. Mm-hmm. You know, A good businessman has to have a skill of talking. That's what Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, is all about. You know, A good journalist has to have the skill of talking and writing. Okay, fair enough. But a politician who is seeking the votes from the people to represent the people, the people would want to know what has he achieved in some concrete sense. Take the case in Canadian politics. Stretch your mind back. Do we find anyone who came into politics had an accomplishment? What is the accomplishment of Justin Trudeau? Outside of politics. Exactly. What is the accomplishment of Justin Trudeau? What was the accomplishment of Stephen Harper? What was the accomplishment of Pierre Elliott Trudeau? They were simply talker, in, in a sense, sophists. Trudeau, if I remember, recall, you know, you and I are of the same generation, mm-hmm. going into the 1974 election when the debate was about wage and price control, there was a huge inflationary pressure going on. Remember, that's, that's 40 years, 40 plus years ago, 74. And it was in the United States and in Canada, in the Western world, inflation and what came to be called a stagflation and un- unemployment was uh, escalating. And so the debate was how to deal with this problem. And Robert Stanfield, the, the leader of the Conservative Party, was talking about wage control in some ways, you know, price control in some way. And what did Mr. Trudeau's response to that was in the debate? He, he talked about what Mr. Stanfield is talking about is, zap, I'll control your wage and I'll control your price. Right. And, and he made a fool of, uh, 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 of, of Stanfield. Stanfield lost that election. The next thing you know, Trudeau was implementing Stanfield's program, wage control and price control. So here's a clear evidence of sophistry, you see. He spun the word. He basically fooled the people. He got elected. He had no record. He had no idea of how he's going to do it. And then he implemented the very things that he w- was criticizing the opponent for. You see? So you see, the last prime minister we had in Canada who had accomplished something outside of politics, who stood apart, I would suggest, was Brian Mulroney. And before that was Lester Pearson. Mulroney came from the world of business. Mm-hmm. He was a chief executive officer of Iron Ore Company. He had built something. He was doing something. He had a record. When we say 
to a politician, have you ever met a payroll? That's precisely the point. What have you done except meeting your own wages? Mm-hmm. So when Trump, during the, during the primary debate, kept saying, all of these people are simply talkers, you know, they had done nothing, precisely the public understood that. They had had 25 years of talkers who had run up the American economy into $20 trillion debt, had lost wars, had not implemented any of the things that they had talked about. They said one thing in the in, in, in election campaign, and then they went and did just the opposite. And therefore, if you look at the opinion polls about what the American public thinks about the politician, it is ground zero. I mean, the ap- approval rating of the Congress in American politics is somewhere in the low teens. Yeah. A lot of people call you the Donald. Has it all blended, or do you sometimes feel like you're just Donald? Or do you feel like you have to be the Donald and be on stage? Honestly, I don't think about it. Mm -hmm. I just do what I have to do. If you start thinking about that, bad things happen. You just Mm -hmm. have to do what you have to do. I come in, I do work like everybody else. I live maybe a different life or maybe not a different life, but I work hard. We can work hard. We have to work hard. If I win, I'm going to have to work so hard, but we're going to make, and I've said it, we're going to make the country better than it ever was. And we have a chance of doing that. Better. I don't mean just bring it back. We have a chance of making it better than it ever was. There's such incredible potential, such incredible people. And you mark my words, we'll be doing this in three or four years, hopefully together. And I think you're going to be, I hope you're going to be very impressed. Okay, we'll come back and see. Thank you. Okay, thanks. So what do you think? Are we going to get back together? Whoa, not so fast. I'm sorry, what did I say? Leonard, you know I will always have feelings for you. Oh, God. What? You said always, you'll always have feelings for me. So? So that sounds more like something you'd say if you didn't want a relationship with someone. This isn't working out, but I'll always have feelings for you. I'm sorry I slept with your best friend, but I'll always have feelings for you. (laughs) Here's the thing, Lisa, I'm into dudes now, but I'll always have feelings for you. How would you say it? I have feelings for you. It's the same thing. No, it's not. Always made it worse. You're overthinking this. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You always overthink things. Uh, there, there, there you go. Always made it worse. <laughs> See, this is where everything goes wrong when we talk. Well, I don't know how you have a relationship without talking. Hey, I went out with this guy, TJ, for eight months. We never talked. To this day, I don't even know what TJ stands for. <laughs> Wait, if you guys didn't talk, well, you'd never mind stupid question. <laughs> So see where talking can get you, or more to the point, see where not talking can get you. Salim, evidence of your doer versus talker thesis seems to abound. And Donald Trump is certainly the current favorite whipping boy of the media on this count. And and it's disturbing a bit to me that so many otherwise articulate and well-expressed writers and editorialists seem to have so, so much trouble explicitly articulating their objections to Trump in a way that that is that is more some substance to it I'm always left kind of feeling well what is it you exactly that you object to just give you some ideas here 
here, for example, is from the National Post, written by Diane Francis in Washington, D.C., May 21st, a looming Trump disaster reads the headline, and in it she says, he's a rich boy with Madison Ave moves, armed with a smartphone, and no policy credentials. Now, I found that funny because, yeah, he's not a politician. That's his plus, not his minus. Yes. <laughs> Am I reading that wrong? Yeah. And we have Robin Urbach, who writes a lot of stuff I like, but this was a really, you know, below-the-belt hit on Trump. And this was just written August 13th. And it was called Trump's Next Speech. Did you did you read it? No. She, she, she sort of does a whole play on it. She, and this is her picking on Trump. Hello, thank you. It's so great to be here. The media, they're so dishonest. I know what they're going to say. They'll call this a small gathering. Does this look small to you? Anyway, yesterday I read in the paper that crooked Hillary Clinton couldn't even get up the stairs at a campaign stop in Florida or North Carolina. Whatever, she couldn't even... Wait a minute, where's that coughing coming from? Can someone please get that guy out of here? I don't know if he's a protester or something. Alan? Alan, where's Alan? <laughs> you can see where she's going with this, right? And at the end of it, I was left feeling, what? What's your point? Do you really expect that to be Trump's next speech? Apparently she must have. Yeah, yeah. So, so you see what, what, yeah. what is happening here. The, the journalists, the commentators, they're taking Trump's words, sentences, and, and what he's saying in public and parsing it as if Trump, you know, doesn't know how to construct a proper paragraph, a proper sentence, or communicate with the people. And that's their criticism. When they say he doesn't have a policy, well, the public is recognizing the policy. In fact, it is his policy that has brought him this far apart from his style. These people are not being themselves honest. I mean, the, the main mean. policy that has brought Trump to where he is are as follows. On immigration, he's talked about the system is broken, and he was the first one who articulated that he will build a wall. The public responded. On the economy, he said that he's going to renegotiate the trade deals because NAFTA and the free trade has basically gutted American industry and left the workers in America poorer than they were before all of these trade deals were signed. And then on the question of foreign policy and war and peace, Trump has said that he's going to put America first. Mm -hmm. So there is policy, you know, and this is policy in the terms of these are the markers that he has set down. And as an executive, he will pull the people together, that is the best people around him together, to drive those marker into substantive achievements. Trump was not an architect designing Trump Towers. He's a businessman. Right. He, he's an executive. He brought people together and delivered the good. Mm -hmm. The difference between him, therefore, or the doers and the talkers is, for the talkers, the end itself is simply talking. That's what becomes, you see. Uh, uh, Obama is a great talker. He engages in soliloquy. At the end of the day, the red line that he drew in Syria doesn't matter. It was a talking point. And when the, when the line was crossed, the line was crossed. He talked around it. So for Trump, talking is a part of leading to action. That's the difference between a doer and a talker. I agree with what you're saying in that context, but I think the reason a lot of the media hates him is because he's a doer, because yeah. he's because he yeah, he capable of action. Timothy O'Brien from Bloomberg News, as published in the Post, 
Donald Trump's financial insecurity, calls it. By any measure, Trump is a really rich dude, but his fixation on continually tossing out sky-high figures displays a neediness that's cause for concern in a presidential candidate. It's as if they hate him on the fact that he appreciates his wealth. This is from Clay Powell, who's a local writer in London, who writes, not a fan of American politics. Four years of Donald Trump's narcissistic behavior will be more than the average American citizen can stomach. It may take another revolution to rid the country of Donald Trump and all his self-absorbed little Trumps. This is, these are personal attacks. These are not about his policy. Precisely. And then there's George Clark, who writes, many of Trump's bombastic claims encourage racism, misogyny, and fear. At best, might be described as truthiness. It feels right for him to say these things, but fact-checkers have been working overtime, trying mostly without success to find some validity to many of his charges. William Watson, who writes, anyone who favors free trade and open markets has got to hope Donald Trump, you know, loses. <laughs> and so this, these are the attitudes that are out there, and none of them speak to anything that I can grab my, put my hands on. Now, well, are they just saying that because they're playing the political game in terms of being talkers? Well, at the end of the day, uh, Bob, we're talking about democratic politics. Democratic politics is demo, the people. It is about the people and how the people will ultimately rank, judge, and vote among the various options that are available. That is the various option being the candidates. Okay, So in this presidential cycle, we are seeing the Trump phenomena. The Trump phenomena is the people, that is, Democratic politics is about the people. And the people have rallied forth around Trump. Now, the others who are enraged or upset, who are they upset with, in effect? If you think it through, with analytically, the they're upset with the people, but they yeah. can't denounce the people. Very good point. They, they cannot say, you people are stupid. You know, here we have this wonderful, articulate, Ivy League lawyer, Ted Cruz, who can, you know, mouth the most perfect sentence and the most perfect paragraph, and he would be, therefore, a great president. And you, Rubes, you hillbillies, you whatever, you know, you who never been anywhere close to an Ivy League college, you know, you have made a decision by not being able to recognize a jewel, there's Ted Cruz, and you have gone for the silly person, mm -hmm. uh, Trump. They cannot say that in democratic politics. So what they're doing, they're tearing down Trump. What are they tearing down Trump for? They're tearing down Trump for those very character or characteristics that makes a man like Ted Cruz, for instance, I'm using the two as a counterfoil, sure. Ted Cruz, so attractive to the Republican establishment, to the magazine writers, to the journalists, and so on and so forth, who can sit with Cruz in a studio and engage in lengthy discussion on the arcane natures of American po uh, Constitution, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, or the free trade policy. And, and they cannot do that with Trump, or Trump will not oblige them with, okay? But the people have decided 
again, back to democratic politics, that they've had enough of these talkers. They want a change. They want, in, indeed, a fundamental change. They want to see somebody who accomplishes things come back and do the same for them in the world of politics. So you put Hillary Clinton, now that basically it is a binary choice, and you compare and contrast them, what is Hillary Clinton's record? She has been a Washington fix, fixture for the last 25 years. She rode into the White House as the first lady, as the spouse of Bill Clinton. She then went on to become a senator in New York on the basis of being, having been a first lady. And then she became a, a, a secretary of state for Obama, and now she is a candidate. So this 25 years, you look at her record, she is precisely the personification, the embodiment of the establishment. On the other side is Trump. Mm-hmm. 25 years, he's been an outsider in politics. He's been a completely outsider in politics. Whatever he has done, whatever he has achieved, he has done it not at the expense of the people. Indeed, his wealth doesn't come through him being in political office as does the wealth, the personal wealth of Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. You know, They have been selling their political office to people who have paid them huge amounts of money to gain access to office and influence. So there you have it. This election campaign, among everything apart, is a campaign where the people will choose whether they want to go ahead with the establishment that is a Washington insider or bring somebody from the outside and clean Washington. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's ultimately the choice. So the people will decide. So in this campaign, as the things are heating up, you can see the talkers are out to smear and destroy the doer in this case, which is Donald Trump, because the talkers benefit. This is a closed circle. This is a bubble. The talkers benefit from having one of them in the White House. So I was listening to George Bush today. You guys like George? No? Yes? No? I like George. You know what I like about George Bush? He makes me feel like I could be president too. He's like the first guy, like, from my reading level, you know, like the first guy, like, from my math class to finally go out and do something. You know what I love about George? He can't say the word terror. He can't. He uses the word every speech. He can't say terror. He goes, (laughs) tear. That's what he says. He goes, America will not stand for tear. Anybody who supports tear, if you're a terrorist, we're going to get you. What kind of president goes, we're going to get you? He's, he's like some redneck they dragged out of a barbecue, put him in a suit. Yo, if you're standing on stage going, we're going to get you, you should just be up there with a couple of bloodhounds going, go get him, Blue. Smell the shirt, go get him. Damn, that Blue's a good dog.
Henry Reardon, you are charged along with Kenneth Daninger in absentia with one count of violation of Article 64 of the Fair Share Law. Specifically, the illegal sale and transfer of 4,000 tons of strategic material known as Reardon Metal to Kenneth Daniger and Daniger Cole. How do you plead, sir? I do not recognize this court's right to try me, nor do I recognize any of my actions as a crime. Mr. Reardon, you will have to enter a plea before this court. Simply refusing to obey the law is not a defense. If you believe you may seize my property simply because you need it, well then so does any burglar. The only difference is a burglar doesn't ask my permission. Sir, I will remind you the punishment this court might impose on you is severe. Go ahead. Impose it. If you sentence me to jail, send armed men to get me. I will not volunteer to go. If you find me, you'll have to seize my assets. I will not volunteer to pay. If you feel you have the right to use force against me, then show it for what it is. Bring guns. <laughs> Sir, we have no intention of pointing guns and seizing your property. Then why are we here? Mr. Reardon, you are misrepresenting the letter and the intent of the fair share law. It is based on the highest principle, the principle of the public good. As defined by those who would dictate and regulate our behavior in our homes and our businesses, stealing their power from our liberty. We are in studio with Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science, Salim Mansour, and you are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org where you can, with no cost or obligation, listen to any of our past broadcasts from the first show to the present. And one wonders if the talking, uh, especially when we're talking about these open-ended criticisms, are they... Are they more about disagreement or more about destruction? Because we can, we can talk and just badmouth someone to destroy him and not really get around to saying why it is we disagree with him other than expressing some vague feeling that you're hoping other people will relate to. Well, well let's, let's put it in concrete terms. The criticism of Trump, and Trump has run into a great deal of criticism on this matter, is that what he says can be demonstrated as something with very negative consequences. And that's what the talkers have tried to pin him down to. So the recent uh, story that where Trump talked about that this election is about who is going to appoint the justices to the Supreme Court. And he said recently that, you know, if uh, Hillary is the president, she's going to appoint justice to the Supreme Court that will end the Second Amendment right. And and you people then, Trump was talking to his audience, will have no way to do anything about it unless Second Amendment people do something. Now, he left it at that, do something. Immediately, the talkers spun that issue that Trump was calling for violence because Second Amendment right is about having guns. So he was then 
doing a dog whistle to the gun owners, sure. the gun lovers, to go out and do violence against uh, 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 Hillary. Now, this was so egregious, you know. It was so dishonest. Uh, Trump was not doing anything of that nature. Trump was saying that if um, the Second Amendment people get together and vote in sufficient number to stop Hillary from becoming, becoming the president, then there is a hope that Hillary will not be in a position to appoint uh, justices to the Supreme Court, that he would then appoint justices uh, who he, would be protective of the Second Amendment right. I'm now, looking at a literal quote of what he said. Now, he did say that, but he also said, again, this is Trump the talker getting himself into trouble all the, the time. The doer getting into trouble. Well, as a talker, as he gets talker, in trouble. Yeah, but but you the see, doers are not... Right, know, yeah. but, but, he, but he also said, quote, and this is in the National Post, Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish the Second Amendment, Trump told his audience. Quote, by the way, if she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But I'll tell you what, that will be a horrible day. Now, of course, the way he said that, there could have been that implied, well, you know, those, got those, those Second Amenders, they have guns and they or, could come or, after Or the her. horrible day. I mean, yeah. again, you see the parsing, you know. I mean, right. I'm an academic, you know. We parse the sentences. We parse the phrases. The horrible day would be the day that Hillary Clinton gets elected. <laughs> well, that would you know, and it, it, it is the sequence of the phrasing, you know, and so the talkers ran with this. But look at the dishonesty of it. It is actually Hillary Clinton who, who has talked about assassination during her 2008 campaign. But we don't even have to go so far back in the 2008 campaign. I hope you recall that during George Bush's presidency, that's George W. Bush presidency, Hollywood came out with movie about a president being assassinated. That is about George Bush, a, a president like George Bush getting assassinated. There was a regular talk about the, you know, how insulting uh, this man is, that somebody should do away with him. And then you had the case of Hillary Clinton in 2008 when she was losing in the month of May, by that time, it was quite clear that Obama would be the nominee. People asked her, why wasn't she conceding the race? And she then said, well, you know, there is a lot of things can happen between now and June. June is when the primary is over. And she said, you recall that in June, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. So the implication is that between May and June, a lot of things can happen. Maybe somebody can pull the gun on Obama and then she would be the nominee. So here it is. I would say that the talkers were projecting on Trump what had already taken place in the case of Hillary having raised this issue eight years ago. I, I have a, another angle on, on this doer and talker thing too. Are the enemies of the doers just the talkers, or is there another sinister villain lurking in the darkness of collectivism, shall we say, what I might call the donters? The donters. <laughs> right. Okay. They're the people who actually, I think, don't care about opinions or facts, whether their own or others, but just want to see productive individuals brought down to their level, to the commoner. They don't want to acknowledge that there is greatness. And the doers, I think, need laws and rights to protect themselves from the donters and the talkers. But isn't a lot of it that a lot of people just don't want to see that accomplishment on the part of someone because it lets them know about their own shortcomings? 
I would say that there is a psychological. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I I would say that there is some element. How much of it is there is open to discussion, but there is some element of envy among the talkers when they're talking about the doers, because at the end of the day, the talkers have nothing to demonstrate except words. Well, no, it's that. interesting you use that word because, you know, Ayn Rand used to often argue that we live in an age of envy yeah. and that yeah. uh, so yeah. much of what motivates people is that enviousness. It, it, also, it also creates that redistributive mentality yeah. that everything should be equal. And uh, is, is envy wanting someone else's stuff or, or, or wanting to pretend you're as great as them or is it more of a bringing down of the great person to one's own level? The levelers. That's a leveler. They want to level everything, that there is no greatness. The idea of greatness in in whatever field of action, uh, the idea of greatness is that an individual has accomplished things that makes him stand outside the crowd. That's, I mean, ancient uh, Greece where Olympics began, it was a sport where the individual stood out in whatever field of action that they go in. Today, what happens? The athletes, they do what they do. It is the media, the commentators, the talkers who are spinning words around them, mm. who either magnify some fault or who exaggerate something, you know, to diminish the achievement of that athlete. But the athlete is not concerned. He is engaged in a competition where he wants to achieve something, you know, whether he's a tennis player, whether he's a boxer, whether he's a chess player, or what have you. I think the world of action and people who are in the world of action, uh, they are fixated at the end of the day, what they have produced or what they have done. Even a writer wants to know how well he or she has written. But the doers, I mean, here we are, you know, talking in a generic mm-hmm. sense. I'm, I'm reminded as we, as we go on the conversation, the line from Shakespeare's Hamlet, where Hamlet is engaged in a soliloquy and Polonius comes on the stage and asks Hamlet what he's doing. And Hamlet says something to the nature, words, 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 you know, mm-hmm. and, and a conversation goes on. That's what, what the do uh, talkers are all about. It's only about words, 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 and words are like candy floss, and in the, in, in the middle of it, there's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's without substance. And I think coming back to politics, coming back to this presidential election cycle, this is what has happened. Trump when he is standing and talking, not with teleprompter, he is not talking as a rehearsed politician. He is talking as a person who really connects with his audience, who are basically common, average people. They are the demos. They are the people of the flyover country. And he's telling them, look, I'm part of you, but this is what I've accomplished, and I'm not ashamed of it. Here is my, you know... Uh, whatever, the plane that I fly in, the helicopter that I come in. Building that I build, whatever. Yeah, and I'm totally comfortable with this. And, uh, you know, I don't have to apologize for this. This is what I have accomplished. And you know what? Interestingly, not the talkers, but the people, the demons, they appreciate that because they are not driven by envy. They would like to see their own accomplishment, whatever it is, whether they own a corner grocery store, 
whether they are common uh, a, a, a small businessman, uh, uh, an agriculturalist, or what have you, that their genuine labor is recognized for what it is, that they don't have to make any apologies for it. Oh, the fountainhead! Mom, isn't that book the Bible of right-wing losers? Yeah, but the guy on the book jacket is one sexy slice of beefcake. So, anyway, this is the story of Maggie Rourke, an architect who refused to compromise. Now, children, while I do traffic school online, you'll be playing with blocks. Maggie's genius and creativity far exceeded that of the others. And I'm not just saying that because I'm her mother. But her teacher, Mr. Ellsworth Tuohy, wanted every child to conform. Banal, very banal. Ooh, wonderfully pedestrian. Oh, this isn't right. Maggie, dancers shouldn't kick too high and buildings mustn't reach the sky. There, hmm. Your rubble is still a little bit higher than the others, so let's just... Ah, welcome to the real world, baby. He would not let Maggie's creativity flower. Babies and gentlemen of the jury, this child's crime was to remind the rest of us that we are merely ordinary. When a blade of grass rises above the others, do we applaud it? No, we cut it down. I recommend nine timeouts served consecutively. <coughs> Throughout the ages, the finger painter, the Plato sculptor, the Lincoln logger stood alone against the daycare teacher of her time. She did not live to earn approval stickers. She lived for herself that she might achieve things that are the glory of all humanity. These are my terms. I do not care to play by any others. And now, if the court will allow me, it's nap time. <sighs> Maggie grew up to be a world-famous architect. Her building became one of the wonders of the world. And on the very top floor was a daycare center where every child was free to follow their dream. Because nothing is... <gasps> Maggie, get away from there! Bad baby! I'm in studio with Salim Mansour, and we're talking about, well, doers and talkers. We're a couple of talkers here talking about doers and talkers. And there's a historic context to all of this as well, isn't there, Salim? Yes, very much so. I mean, let's, let's just focus on uh, American politics for a moment. Um... Uh, and, and democratic politics in the sense of a republic, United States as, a, as the first republic in modern history. And let's go back and look at the founding fathers. The founding fathers were all doers. They all had their own vocation. Uh, and the example that was set by uh, George Washington himself. Now, they, could, they, they were ready to offer him a lifetime presidency. They would have made him a monarch, you know. The famous line in, from Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony talking about Caesar, that, you know, they offered him the crown. That, well, in the case of George Washington, you know, he could have been a lifetime president. But he set the standard. The standard is that you come in to serve the people, uh, 
The people elect you to serve them. You have a vocation outside politics. You come in, you serve the people, and then you go back to your vocation. George Washington served a second term reluctantly, and then he stepped down. And so two terms for the presidency became the norm until Franklin Delano Roosevelt came around. What about the congressmen and the senators? Well, the whole idea was, and it goes back to ancient Greece, it goes back to Cincinnatus, that you know, you have your vocation. Cincinnatus was a, a farmer. You, and when the people call you to need you, you pick up your sword, you pick up your shield, you go to war, or you go and represent them in, as, a, as a, a tribune, and then you go back to your farm, which is what Cincinnatus did. So George Washington did. You know, he was a farmer. He had been in the army. He went back. And that was the two-year terms of the congressman, right. you know. You have the vocation. You are what you are, you know. You, you, you are a farmer. You are a, a mason. You Whatever. And, and, and you take the time off. Because of your accomplishment, people have trust in you. They send you to represent them. You serve for two years, and then you come back home to your profession. What has happened now in American politics is the politicians have become a professional class and they serve their lifetime in it. Take John McCain. You know, since he came back from Vietnam when he was a young man, a soldier, and came back a prisoner of war, you know, he was in his late 30s, he got elected to the Congress as, again, a war hero in that sense, way back in the late 70s and early 80s. 35, 36 years later, he's still in the Congress. You know, you have an incumbency rate in the Congress, which is in excess of 90%. You don't have people now who come to serve the people. They, in a sense, they come to serve themselves. We have talked about this in American politics and Canadian politics of putting a term limit, and that hasn't gone very far. But here you have Trump coming in, running. Everybody knows that Trump is not a person who's going to remain there. He's coming in. If he gets elected, he will serve a one-year term, that is four-year, one term, or maybe at the most a, a second term, and then he will go away. It's not about incumbency. It's not about a professional class. That makes him, again, a very attractive proposition to the people, that he's a doer. He has a life outside of politics. Now, that's an interesting comment. I, I have an, another article here by Jen, Jen Gerson who commented that a Trump-like triumph is very unlikely in Canada. And she says that this country has proven relatively immune to the extreme populism infecting Western nations. I don't know if I can agree with her on that, but she suggests that the only thing that we have close to to Trump here in Canada was possibly Rob Ford. Would you agree? Well, in a small sense, yeah. There was a Not scenario, on the presidential right? scale, yeah, obviously, yeah. But, but, but as a doer versus a talker, as a no, I wouldn't agree because I... Because I understand he had a successful uh, business. Th- th- there was something about Rob Ford that, that attracted uh, his constituency in Toronto, and he ended up as a one-term mayor. He was controversial. He was, in, in that sense, politically incorrect, as Trump is in the larger sense, politically incorrect, mm. because he's taking on the incumbents. 
But Rodford not only had a very small field of action, he came from a political class himself. His father was in politics, his brother was in politics. In a sense, he was inheriting the role of a councilman in East York which was almost like a family seat, you know. Even so, he was perceived as a doer, not a talker. For example, Jimmy Kimmel, who interviewed him when he was down in the States, he made a very interesting comment. He said, whatever you want to say about the guy, speaking of Rob Ford, he really cared about being mayor, and he really cared about doing a good job. Obviously, he had his demons. I don't think he knew who I was, says Kimmel. I do remember he spent the whole car ride on the phone, this is on the limousine going to the the studio, calling back constituents who had left him phone messages. That was impressive, says Kimmel. I wish his spirit would somehow fill the potholes on my drive to work. Meaning that here's a guy who is so politically involved. I think even as a politician, Torontonians saw him more as a doer than a talker because he was always there. He was, if there's one thing you can say about the guy, he was always on site. He would go to an apartment building to see it for himself, not just hear it from the pundits. He would always be answering his constituents' mail. I guess that was his, his forte. Is that not what we're talking about? Or is that in, a whole... In, in, in some ways, I, I, in the classification, that's not what I was no. thinking about. All of that may be true about uh, Bob Ford, and, and Bob Ford had his very loyal constituents. But I think what we are talking about, at least what I'm talking about, is that the doers have accomplishment outside of politics. That's what distinguishes Trump. As I said, let's go back to the, uh, the founding fathers of American politics. George Washington was a farmer, a landlord, and he was a member of the military class that he was serving the British colonial government in, in, in the United States. And then when the call came, he took up the literally the sword, you know, and figuratively the sword to lead the Republican, the, uh, the army for uh, the independence of the 13 colonies. So he had a life outside. He came in, he led the people, he served the people, and then he went back to the life that he had, his vocation. That, in a sense, is the Republican example going all the way back to ancient Greece, in Sparta or Athens, that, you know, the the tribunes who were elected, of course, the, 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 the constituency was very small, city-states, but the tribunes who were elected, they had demonstrated to the electors their achievement in whatever field of action that they were engaged in. And then they were elected as tribune for two years or one year, and then they went back to their profession. What we have now, the phenomena, is that there is a political class. And you have to be part of that political class. In other words, you have to be an insider. And this political class is basically reflective of people who are talkers. Hillary Clinton is, 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 as I said a little while ago, the embodiment, the personification of the talkers. Ted Cruz, embodiment and personification of a talker. Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush. Now, they might have been politically very good. You know, they may have been very responsive to the constituents. They might have been articulating the things that the constituents wanted, but they did not have a life outside of politics. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's a different thing entirely. 
it's interesting. You know, not everybody is opposed to Trump in terms of the talkers. Some of them are actually kind of get the message. I noticed here, for example, just very quickly, uh, Lori Goldstein comments that Trump is the only honest climate denier. He says, as for Trump, he's a climate change denier, but at least unlike the leaders in 194 other countries, he's not peeing on our legs and telling us it's raining. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you have Lawrence Solomon, who suggests that Trump's success comes from his ability to recognize major visceral issues and then to champion them unapologetically, often through seemingly outlandish positions like making Mexicans pay for a wall. His politically incorrect categorical positions not only win the public's approval, they win for Trump intense loyalty. The Trump coalition isn't based on any single ideology or consistent set of rational policies. It's a populist assemblage of largely disparate groups whose common bond is their exclusion from orthodoxy. These are passionate voters for whom voting is very personal. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. You see, the word populism has taken on a very negative connotation, and the people who have been attacking Trump have been using the word populist as a negative against Trump. But here is a the Coming other, back to your point that it's the people that they're really it, it, bitching about, it, it, isn't precisely. it? Precisely. Right. In the last uh, several election cycle, America is the most advanced democracy, the greatest republic, so on and so forth. But but look at the uh, people participation in, in politics. Uh, it has been falling, and, and now we have uh, almost half the American people do not go out and vote. So this will be a very interesting election cycle, whether because of Trump, the numbers are going to change. If the numbers change, I mean, if, if half the people are not voting and a fraction of that half, because of Trump, come out and vote, then Trump will possibly win. The, the, the election cycle that we see, the margin of victory between victory and defeat is less than, you know, one, one and a half percentage point. I mean, Obama's last victory. That's remarkable if you think about it. Yeah, you t exactly. If you Obama's victory in 2012 over uh, Mitt Romney, he he had in the in terms of popular vote somewhere about 51 percent of the popular vote. It was a fra fraction of one percent, 50 point something, right? So if Trump brings in more people into political participation and vote, he will do better than Obama did, simply by bringing in, that was what the story of Reagan Democrats were, when Reagan mm -hmm. had landslide victories. So this whole notion that Trump is populist is a derogatory term on the part of the talkers. <laughs> Ironically, the talkers want to reduce the number of people from participating boring them or, or, or basically oh, turning them off from politics. Because they might vote against their causes. That's right. <laughs> That's right, of <laughs> That's course. Right. Well, Salim, our, our hour has zipped by again. It's, it's amazing how quick the time goes. And as we wind down our show for today, remember, when it comes to doers and talkers, just leave the talking to us and we'll leave the doing up to you. So <laughs> do make a point of joining us again next week on our, on our journey in the right direction. And until then... Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I'll tell you right now, man, if you want to know how to be rich, don't look at a rapper, don't look at a rock star, look at a guy like Bill Gates. That dude is so good at being rich, it's like irritating. <laughs> he makes like $30 million a day.
And look at him. He dresses like he works in like a shoe store. But that's why he's always gonna be rich. He's not showing off trying to like buy all this flashy stuff, like walking around with like, like an iced out laptop medallion hanging off his neck. Have some fuzzy pimp hat to the side. Sitting in a hot tub with some bitches, you know? Have a midget in his crew just for the hell of it. 